Hi, I'm Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel. People are celebrating in Kherson because Ukraine has retaken the city from Russia's invading forces. Today, The Globe's Mark McKinnon is back to tell us what he saw this weekend in the liberated city. This is The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Mark, thank you so much for joining me again. Thank you. You were in Kherson just just a couple of days ago this weekend. What was it like to be there? Honestly, it was one of the more inspiring things that I've been through in this war. A lot of the places that we've gained access to after the Russians have left have been quite depressing. Um, cities like Buch is very famous, Borodyanka, Izium, the last time I was on your show, I think. There is some of that in Kherson, but what was notable was this is not a city that was destroyed by the conflict. Because back in in March, uh, in March the 1st, the Ukrainians withdrew from the city without a fight and the Russians came in. And now the opposite has happened. The Russians on November 11th pulled out of the city and the Ukrainians entered. So there's never been a, a big battle for Kherson. And so mm-hmm. the residence was much more like one of those scenes that we've seen in, you know, I'm old enough to have covered the fall of Baghdad when people came into the streets and were just sort of so elated that what was happening to them was over. And this was more similar to that. I mean, it wasn't a large number of people. A lot of people left Kherson, obviously. Some fled at the start of the war. Many moved just now uh, with the Russians across the river. But, you know, the people who remained in Kherson were absolutely delighted and elated to see uh, foreigners. I've never had an easier time being a journalist. People were, you know, lining up to tell me their stories. Really? And so what are, what are some of the stories that they told you? What did you hear from people? I mean, there were the first thing that that I, I encountered were people who were gathered on the riverbank, uh, the Dnipro River. The Russians have now withdrawn across, and, and so you can see right across uh, into Russian-held territory from this sort of park that overlooks the river, which should be a dangerous place to be. But Ukrainians, uh, the residents of Hedison, were going down there with their mobile phones trying to get a signal from the Russian side of the river uh, so they could tell their families and friends in other parts of Ukraine that they were okay because it had been without mobile connections for some time. Hmm. And then people were saying to me that they had a hard time believing that the Ukrainians were coming to the city. They were, they were actually quite afraid this was going to be a major battle. They knew that the Ukrainian troops were coming towards Kherson. They were expecting the Russians to defend the city. And so hmm. people were, were just relieved and, and, and happy. And they were, t- you know, they were running into the streets to, to hug the first Ukrainian soldiers they saw. I met a kid who was trying to get everybody who had liberated the city to sign his flag, thinking it would be a great souvenir for, for the future. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what about what the city was like when it was under Russian occupation? Because as you said, the Russians had control of it from the beginning of March for, for, for quite a while, for most of this war. What was life like for people living there under Russian occupation? So what you saw here was sort of an effort by Russia to sort of start to integrate these places. And so residents were telling me that the first thing that changed was was the television and mm-hmm. how uh, on the first day the uh, television tower was targeted, they believe. And then when it was repaired, the only things they could see were Russian state-controlled television news about how this was an operation to liberate Ukraine and the propaganda about you know Ukraine being sort of run by fascists that Vladimir Putin is going to save Ukrainians from. 
And then a few months later, it was the the cell phone networks, the mobile networks, where uh, one day you just couldn't use your Ukrainian mobile phones in the city. So everybody had to go line up and get a Russian SIM card, which involved giving your passport and your home details and basically telling the Russians that you live in this city and you're here and here's your name and your address. After that, wow. they started moving to implement the, the Russian ruble. So the Ukrainian hryvnia as a currency was being phased out and in came the ruble. And even clocks were set ahead of an hour. So like every facet of life, they were trying to just make these people believe that they were living in Russia, that this was Russia. And uh, you know, one of the young women I met on the square was just saying, at first people really resisted this. They didn't want to start using the ruble. They didn't want to get a Russian SIM card, but eventually you had no choice. You needed to make transactions, you needed to get paid, and so people started accepting Russian government pensions and salaries, and uh, you needed to have a mobile phone. So people were, you know, even if they hated the occupation, were starting to sort of feel themselves falling into this idea that they lived in a what was now Russia. And uh, she said it took one day after the Russians left for people to start refusing to take the ruble. Hmm. Wow, that's that's a fascinating look at actually what what it is like in that kind of transition period when Russia is trying to institute all these these new things on this population. I, I want to ask you about, I guess, the infrastructure there, because you said that that Kherson was not as destroyed. There wasn't a battle for Kherson in the ways that there were for other areas. Uh, but and you also mentioned, though, people were standing in an area trying to get a mobile connection. So I'm just wondering, like in terms of the services there, what, what what's actually available? Right now, there's there's almost no infrastructure at all. As the Russians were, were leaving after they denounced their withdrawal, they, they seem to have destroyed a lot of what was functioning. Uh, residents say they haven't had water or electricity or heat for days, if not weeks. Mm-hmm. Hedison was, was functioning in a semi-normal way until the last little while when uh, it was basically disconnected from, from Russian uh, infrastructure or Russian-provided infrastructure. And they offered uh, residents said, "Listen, you know we're going to be leaving, and uh, you know you can move with us to Russian-controlled areas on the other side of the river." And a large number of people appear to have done that, um, based on the fact that the city is is, is fairly empty when, when we got there. How how large uh, how large a number are we talking? The, the Russians say one hundred and fifteen thousand. They have yet to give. Uh, say anything completely accurate this entire conflict. So I wouldn't put too much weight on that. Some people may have just not come into the streets yesterday because they're not sure what's happened. I mean, it's it's been a bewildering year to live in Kherson. On March the 1st, you know, you, people, I had described to me, you know, a lady was sitting at the bus stop waiting for a bus that morning and all of a sudden there's Russian soldiers and tanks going down the road. And now November 11th, you know, 250 some days later, <laughs> you have the opposite happening. You wake up and uh, the person at the post office says, I saw Ukrainian troops in the city. There will obviously be people who are just not sure if this is a new situation is going to last, what it means. Are the Russians coming back? Is this all part of some elaborate trap, as the Ukrainian president's office has suggested? Although he was in Kherson on Monday and, and, and proclaiming that this is, you know, back under Ukrainian control and a big step towards, you know, perhaps bringing an end to this war. You said so. We talked about like the you know potential one hundred fifteen thousand people who would have left left the city, kind of ahead of the Ukrainian troops coming in. Why why would they have done that? What's what are kind of I guess the 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 reasons behind that potentially? And obviously we couldn't interview those people, but we interviewed people who had decided to stay and who talked to some of their friends who had left, and it was obviously a big decision for people to make. And number one. People didn't know if there was going to be a big battle for the city, and the Russians were offering safe passage away from a city that could become, you know, another Sarajevo, another Grozny. But also, I had it explained to me that you know people were at some point 
just accepted that the Russians were here and this is now the government and people were taking jobs with this new government. People were getting paid and getting paid fairly well by this new government. The Ukrainian police security services might view these people as collaborators and there might be obvious repercussions for having collaborated with an occupying power. We've seen before, Mark, that after Russian troops retreat from an area they've held, uh, we've seen evidence of, of atrocities that have been committed. So, of course, I'm thinking of, of, of Bucha, the mass graves that were discovered, uh, Bucha outside of uh, Izium as well. Is, is there any evidence of, of this here at this time? So President Zelensky um, said in his nightly address overnight Sunday that um, Ukrainian investigators had once more uncovered the number he gave us 400 alleged war crimes and that bodies of civilians and bodies of uh, Ukrainian soldiers had been recovered. Obviously, we have no way of putting that to the test. In the case of Kherson so far, the people that I talked to, it does sound like it was pretty awful those first few days. Um, one young woman described to me how there were just cars in the streets and, and bodies in the cars because the Russians were just shooting at cars. And uh, in the first days, Hedison residents, there was quite a large pro-Ukrainian demonstration, a series of them in the city. People were walking through, uh, standing on tanks, waving the Ukrainian flag. And the Russians let those happen. And there were some interesting scenes back there of, of sort of um, that really actually helped inspire um, the overall Ukrainian resistance. You'd see grandmothers sort of walking up to, to soldiers in Kherson and telling them, what are you doing here? And um, apparently what, what I heard yesterday was from several people was that while this, these were allowed to happen and we didn't see the kind of crackdowns that I think people were fearing, Later on, Russia's security service would track down using sort of cameras um, those who had taken part. People would just be walking down the street, have a bag placed over their head, get thrown into a car and drove off. And some of those people were interrogated for, for days or a week. Some of them never came back. And so, yes, I think it's fair to say it was a very repressive rule um, that, um, you know, we are going to hear more and more about bad things that happened in Harrison. As we learned in, in Bucha and Izium, they, they tend to come out over time. Mm, yeah. And I, I understand there's also some concern that, that Russian troops maybe have planted mines or booby traps in the area as they, as they were retreating. Is, is that a legitimate concern there too? So, I mean, there was at least uh, one person, I think, killed yesterday and several wounded in, 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 by mines around uh, the region. So it's not just the city of Kherson, but the surrounding area. There's a military airport. All of this has been suddenly handed back to the Ukrainians. And when I was, uh, you know, in Kherson, we were getting, the, the regional governor was saying that like, people shouldn't be gathering in the city center because there's mines everywhere. We haven't had time to clear them. Um, you know, people were broadly ignoring that and coming out to celebrate. We'll be back in a minute. In previous Ukrainian advancements, uh, we heard about them relying heavily on weapons supplied by by Western countries. Uh, and in fact, just on Monday, Canada announced 500 million in, in military aid to Ukraine. Do we know what role Western weapons and supplies played in retaking Kherson? I think it's fair to say that long-range artillery provided by Western countries and uh, Canada's provided, I think, four uh, M777 uh, howitzers, which are very long-range, longer-range than anything the Russians possess. Um, the Americans provided 100, I think. 
uh, and particularly something called a, a, a HIMARS. It's a, it's a long-range rocket system that the Americans have provided to the Ukrainians. These basically made the Russian positions on the left bank of, of the Dnieper, where the city of Kherson sits, unsustainable because they were able to destroy the supply lines. The Ukrainians kept hitting the bridges across the Dnieper. They were able to hit the convoys that were bringing in supplies. And see, what you had was this large number of troops, Russian troops on, on the west bank of the river who effectively couldn't be resupplied. You couldn't rotate in fresh troops. You couldn't bring in uh, reserves. So at some point, despite the fact this was politically embarrassing for President Putin, the uh, sort of general staff in Russia decided they had no choice but to pull back across the river. Of course, what that's done now is allowed the Ukrainians to pull these same long-range weapons uh, further forward, and now they can target other things that were previously out of reach in, in the occupied areas. Yeah. Now, this is the third major retreat that we're hearing about for, for Russian troops. The first was withdrawing from, from Kiev uh, earlier on in, in the spring. The second was withdrawing from Kharkiv in September when we last talked to you on the, on the podcast, Mark. Uh, and so now this third one uh, from retreat from Kherson. How significant is this advancement uh, into Kherson, like the Ukrainian army retaking Kherson in, in, the, in the broader context of this war? It's it's a major defeat for the Russians. This was, you know, the only sort of provincial capital that they had taken since February twenty fourth. And and President Putin was on television saying residents of Kherson are, you know, Russian citizens forever, just six weeks ago. So it's a major political setback. It's more like the Battle of Kiev than it is the Battle of Kharkiv. The Battle of Kharkiv was a, you know, a Ukrainian breakthrough that made the Russians retreat chaotically. It was more like Kiev, where they realized this is not sustainable. We can't achieve what we want to do here. So we're going to pull back and reposition our troops in, in, in a better way. <clears throat> and I think what's, what the um, Ukrainians certainly expect is the Russians are going to take tens of thousands of soldiers who would have been required to defend Kherson, move them around to another front, and to counterattack from there. Um, most likely follow, uh, focusing on the eastern uh, Donbass front. But it's a big deal because now you've got a question mark. Kherson is the gateway to, to Crimea. Um, so now the door to Crimea is open, which that opens an entirely – a discussion I'm sure that President Putin never expected to be having uh, mm. when he started this war back in February, that you know the, this, this trophy, his one real gain in terms of territorial conquest, you know, the, what he thought would put him in the history books alongside Peter the Great, is now at risk. Hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So, I mean, what what could this signal, I guess, for Crimea? Is this giving Ukraine kind of a, a, a closer a way to potentially even retake that territory, which which Russia has annexed in, in 2014? This certainly is the, the, the conversation, the hope among the Ukrainian population that this is going to lead to an offensive in the direction of Crimea. I think we're seeing a whole lot of background negotiations these days. The Americans and the Russians are, are, are speaking through back channels um, because of the threats that President Putin has issued in, in recent weeks to use nuclear weapons if necessary uh, in the Ukraine conflict. And most people think that losing Kherson was a massive embarrassment for him, but it's not the same as an attack on Crimea, which he would say is, you know, this is a direct assault on, on you know, what is really forever Russia. And as you pointed out earlier, NATO weapons playing such a big role in this conflict, I think he would feel uh, or, or, or certainly uh, threaten to uh, use the biggest weapons he has in his arsenal. So Crimea is, I, I think that's going to get very tense if the Ukrainians move in that direction. 
Um, but at the same time, this is this is the you know from from a Ukrainian perspective, that's that's also occupied territory. They don't draw distinctions between Kherson and uh, Zaporizhia and Donetsk and Crimea. This is all territory that was Ukrainian until 2014. They are not the aggressor country; they're just liberating their land. Um, and so it's you know there's there's a political reality that the West I think is now sort of pushing President Zelensky's office to at least show that it's open to some negotiations. Most Ukrainians think you're asking us to bargain away territory just when we're starting to win this war. No. So, I mean, that puts President Zelensky in a very difficult position between uh, his allies who are supplying the weapons that are allowing Ukraine to make these gains, um, who are saying, you know, hey, don't push this too far. And his population, which is saying, don't stop now. This is all our land. Do we have a sense, Mark, how much Ukrainian territory does Russia still control? Um, it's difficult to estimate. I think it's it, depending whether or not, um, you know, uh, what the front line is at this moment. It, it's close to 15 or 20 percent, somewhere in that range. Still significant than a, a fifth yeah. of the country. Yeah. Most of that is in the Luhansk Oblast, as well as Crimea. They occupy a large part of Donetsk and the sliver, really, of, of Kherson and uh, Zaporizhia Oblasts. Hmm. Just just lastly here, winter is, of course, coming up fast. How is, how is the cold weather and the snow, how is, how is that going to change things in the war? The main um, effect that winter is going to have is probably on public morale here in Ukraine and on the population. You know, hmm. Kiev or the globe has an apartment. You only get electricity now 12 hours out of 24. There's a, apparently enough gas to keep the heat on for the winter. Um, that will be tested if it's a cold winter, and Ukraine, Ukrainian winters can be cold and harsh. Um, that obviously makes it more and more difficult. Ukrainians have been you know, impressed the world with their resilience, their willingness not to, not just the military, but the civilians to stay where they are. This is our land. That becomes harder and harder to do uh, when it's cold. If you have, you know, elderly people with you or children with you, um, in terms of its, the effect on the military, um, you know, you, you get different assessments on that. I mean, everything um, changes in cold weather. I mean, bullets move more slowly. The time you have to to treat a patient grows shorter. The ground if it gets really cold, will freeze. And so what is now a muddy terrain can be a hardened terrain. And so they can actually, in some ways, you know, some specific ways, it'll be very hard to to be in a trench, obviously, and to be holding a front line. And Canada is actually one of the countries that's been supplying a lot of uh, cold weather uniforms to the Ukrainian military, which, you know, doesn't sound like the most important aid you can provide, but I can promise you that that gets mentioned a lot. All the way down to, you know, if you're driving a tank, it might actually make life a bit, you, well, you can move faster. So I spoke last week with the head of Ukraine's National Security Council, and I said, you know, do you expect the front line to stabilize during the winter? Is it going to be hard for armies to move? He said, no, nothing right now. The, the weather does not matter. We're pressing ahead with our plans, and I'm sure the Russians are, are going to do the same. Hmm. Mark, thank you so much for your reporting here and for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you, Minika. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White, Cheryl Sutherland, and Rachel Levy-McLaughlin. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.